0: Welcome to the next episode of The Podcast, a cannabis podcast for budding enthusiasts. This episode, as always, was brought to you by our amazing sponsors, Seeds Here Now, your number one place to get seeds guarantee on germination and satisfaction why would you go anywhere else they got all the best breeders in the game check them out if you want to grow some of that fire for yourself likewise coppet biological systems they got everything to keep the garden happy healthy and pumping out that killer whether it's beneficial bugs microbes or feeds they're your one-stop shop Likewise, huge shout out to the Patreon gang. You guys are the lifeblood of the show, helping to make episodes happen. If you want access to exclusive content, early access to episodes and more, go check out patreon.com forward slash the podcast. This week, we are thrilled to be joined by the genetic maestro himself, Chimera. Chimera to talk about all things cannabis science and so much more i hope you're ready for a big one guys this is going to be a three-parter first one ever let's get into it Alrighty, so a big thank you and welcome to the genetic maestro himself ryan of chimera genetics thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today
1: it's my pleasure heavenly thank you for having
0: me here not a problem. So the first question we like to ask guests these days is, what are you currently been smoking on? You know, I'm actually,
1: I'm not really smoking a lot of flour these days. The last couple of years, I've really been uh, focused on vaping concentrates, uh, I'm not even really dabbing them on a hot nail, either just with a torch or, uh, you know, a lower temp kind of vape device. I find it's a lot easier on my lungs and, you know, as we start getting up on in age, it uh you know, I, I, I kind of when I when I hang out with friends at conferences and stuff, we used to do that back in the day, the Emerald Cup or whatever we do. There's a lot of really really heavy smoking that goes on, and I just find that it doesn't, it doesn't really go well too well with my lungs. Um, I'd rather do a, a smaller inhalation of something much much stronger and more flavorful. Um, so I've kind of been staying away from the flower, to be perfectly frank. Um, so, just really smoking on fresh live rosin and, and really nice fresh dabs that uh, kind of are popping around in the community these these days here.
0: Yeah, I can certainly relate to that sentiment, having recently put down the bong and picked up the vape myself. I guess my question is, do you feel like there are any specific cultivars which really lend themselves to being um, smoked through a vape in concentrate form?
1: I think they all do. Um you know, a really good, uh, really good live rosin or a live resin kind of extract is really just the essence of the plant and the THC. Um, so you're, you're removing all that, you know, that leaf material that really is not adding anything of health to your lungs. And it's certainly not anything, adding anything to the experience of the, of the smoke or of the consumption. So, I really think that that kind of direction, whether it's a, a high quality CO2 or whatever the extraction method is, as long as you remove all the, um, the solvents and even better, if you're using solvent less techniques, you're really just getting the the part of the plant that, you know, is really is, is what we want. Right. Um, and it's just an evolution from, from, you know, started off as hashish and then we all kind of got into the bubble hash and the, and the dry cysts. But, the, these extracts they use, as you know, probably they use heat and pressure to to pull the essential compounds out of that kind of more natural matrix of the of the resin. And uh, you're you know if if it's processed and cared for carefully, you end up with a product that, in my opinion, is a lot healthier to smoke than
0: you know sucking on half gram joints all day. Yeah, certainly. I think the the amount of tar consumed is astronomically different, right? So for that reason alone I'm on board. In past episodes we've had breeders talk about this idea of breeding for the end goal of making concentrates and sometimes they would reference, you know, big gland heads, things like that. Would you ever consider something like that or do you just think like a good strain will translate to good concentrates and you don't need to specifically set out to do that?
1: Yeah, a good cultivar should definitely I mean, if it's grown well, that's what you're trying to do is bring out that peak essential oil expression. And uh, I think that any kind of variety is really good for that. There's definitely something going on with the size of the resin gland and either the ratio of the thickness of the gland to the internal diameter, or the you know the internal diameter, essentially. So think of it like a, we call it a waxy pillow. So like the, the pillowcase is made of something that is somewhat fibrous or waxy material. It's got, you know, there's, there's actually no drug content in the, in the structure of the trichome itself, but the inside of that pillow is where all the, um, the essential oils are produced in the plant and certainly where the cannabinoids are produced as well. And, um, yeah, so really being able to like take those compounds out or the oil that is in those compounds, which is really what I call, what I consider the essence of the plant. Um, yeah, I'm not so sure that we've really do understand whether it's there's a specific gland size or maybe when the glands get to a certain size that the the you know the membrane that surrounds that waxy pillow gets thicker so it can can hold in the the uh, the contents and like I said that's not those those that's made from material that is not um, really what we're after as consumers it's just kind of in the way and so I think a really a good extract. Is about removing the things that we want from the things that we don't want without changing the chemical profile of the plant, um, and that way, any extract really will let or any good quality extract will let the plant shine in its in its best form, right? And we like them all. <laughs> I mean, it's it's expensive to do with a with a tire, um, you know, a haze or something like the lemon pine that I was using for a while. They make incredible extracts, but you know, the ratio the return is not very good. Um, so, as a breeding goal, really, it's just about, you know, producing biomass with enough what we call oil content, um, you know, so that you they can shine in extracts.
0: Sure. And, I mean, a great point you just touched on there about, you know, haze and... Um, Some of these smaller yielding sativa varieties, you know, making it a hard sort of argument for the return on investment. I remember in an episode with DJ Short, he discussed how some of these varieties have like a higher proportion of the systolithic trichomes that don't have that kind of pillowcase that we've been referencing. Would you think that there is still a lot of room to make concentrates because I think DJ said that, you know, they tend to secrete the oils onto the surface of the plant. Do you think that you could still get a good return from that given that the oil's there somewhere, it's just maybe not in the trichrome head or do you think the trichrome head is really fundamentally necessary to get that um, good concentrate?
1: Yeah, so, you know, I don't like creating drama with people but that's he's actually not correct to say that. cystolithic hairs are non-glandular. Um, so they actually don't really uh, produce an oil um, that's extractable or, or that is secreted by the, the, the structure. It's really like a thought, long, thin, kind of pointy thing. Um, if you look at a, a resin gland under, you know, some kind of microscopic picture, and there's all sorts of them on the net, you know, Bubble Man has got a lot of great, great ones if you follow him on Instagram. Um, but you can kind of see that the actual structure, it's really about what's inside that glandular head. And there's shorter, you know, there's also there's a few different types of glands on the plant. There's these non, you know, non-capitate glands, and there's the bulbous glands that sit on, uh, on the leaf. Like you were saying, they're kind of more down towards. They don't really have a. I kind of think of it like a a golf ball on a tee, that sticks into the into the leaf surface. So they don't really have the tee part. It's just like kind of a little gland on the, on the ground. But I'm not sure that those are really um too important in the overall processing you know in in the overall space there is some definite differences in chemistry but i think with our current extraction methods um unless you're actually physically separating those gland heads by size we're really just going in with either heat or pressure or a solvent to pull those things out right so you're gonna for the most part you're gonna get it all anyway
0: yeah sure So a question I'm very interested in, but one that's kind of hard to talk to people without a scientific background. So I've been waiting for you to come on so you could give me your opinion. I remember in that same chat with DJ, we were talking about like the biochemical nature of like what makes you feel a strain as a sativa versus an indica. And it's obviously still a bit of a cloudy area where we don't really have it down pat. But something which always comes to my mind is that even if you take a really racy sativa and make a concentrate, it doesn't tend to have that same racy effect. Like you might still perceive it as a bit sativary, but it's certainly mellowed out. What's your thoughts on this? And do you think that it maybe indicates that there's something in the plant matter which isn't being extracted, which contributes to the perceptual feel of a certain strain?
1: Yeah, so, so there's a, a few things that we should probably touch on that. Let's come back to the Indica sativa thing and just talk about the chemistry thing for a moment. Um, and actually, we can use Dan as a great example. Um, you know, DJ, he had these great, you know, all these great varieties, but his whole thing has always been, he, you know, he he came from a, a time period where we weren't breeding using a lab, right? We were, we were always selecting all, plants based on how they make you feel, not... How much THC there is in the plant okay and so when I, I was doing some work down in the States and you know I, I collected a whole bunch of Dan stuff uh, both in clone and, and from seed and we grew up a, a fair amount of it and the the one thing that I noticed in general was that the plants were actually relatively low THC they were in most of them not all of them but the vast majority of them fell kind of in the 8 to 12 to 13 percent range which is pretty low for the market um, market average these days, at least in, in North America and California specifically. Um, and I've also noticed this with you know other. If you listen to experiences of people that take the sesamet, which is a you know a synthetic THC. It's actually not C. It's a yeah. It's a synthetic THC in a peanut oil uh, matrix, kind of a jelly you know a jelly type pill capsule. And if you take those things or you ask the patients that are using them what they feel, and they always say that they get really tired. And I've kind of noticed after having access to the lab and playing with a lot of these different varieties and smoking them and also having the ability to run them through to understand their cannabinoid profile is that when you start turning the THC way up, you really do get that lethargic property. And I think that what a lot of people sometimes confuse for the effects of myrcene is actually a result of a high THC concentration, whereas Dan was always selecting for plants based on their, again, how they made him feel, not on the basis of a lab report. And so I think that there's something to that ceilingless high, that really clarity that you get from smoking, you know, what what you're referring to as the the sativas I, I call them equatorials those more equatorial plants um that they were not really bred for high cannabinoid content they're really in that lighter what I would call the lighter class of of cannabis and you know for for you know I, i'm 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 mid40s so I'm going to say younger generation but you know, obviously we're we're now not the younger generation anymore. But I think in regards to the folks that were smoking a lot during the '60s and '70s and, and early '80s and and working back then, you know, those types of headspace you you hear it all the time where these these older hippie elders from our community say, you know, the, today's cannabis is too strong and we don't have those unique headspaces that you used to be able to get from the Acapulco Golds and the Hawaiians and the Thais and I have a theory, and I, you know, I haven't confirmed this 100%, obviously, but, but my theory is that a lot of those head spaces that you, that you could get back then were because the cannabis actually wasn't stronger than you know, even 15% cannabis, right? In Canada, we, I mean, I'm in Canada, and now we have this legal, you know, this national legalization system, and the provincial distributors that buy the cannabis from the growers, they really don't want to even look at anything less than 20% um which is crazy because i mean if you make that if you if you transfer that analogy over to the alcohol industry that would wipe out most of the wines and all of the beers and the you know the ciders and all that kind of stuff and really push into the the spirit world right the the whiskeys and the gins and the vodkas all that kind of stuff and i think that having a regulatory system where that encourages us to just start chasing high THC numbers is actually not a great way to be producing cannabis. Because again, we're not, we're not considering the way that these plants make people feel the younger generation. That's all they've grown up with. You know, they, they a lot of these kids start with dabs and stuff. So you get a lot more THC. They they get a lot larger dose of THC and, it's again, like I said, that's my personal, my personal belief that that's actually one of the things that's leading to this, what I call THC lethargy, right? We try to, in in the community, we try to say, oh, terpenylene or limonene or pinene, they make you up, they give you an up perspective. Um, But, and then Myrcene brings you down, but The truth is, is that we actually haven't done those type of studies yet to be able to say that conclusively. And and legally, in most countries, you can't do that kind of study. Um, For example, in Canada, the the licensed producers here, they need a special license to consume the cannabis they're producing on site, right? If they want to – if a grower wants to to smoke his own weed and they don't have that license, they have to sell it to the liquor distribution board and it goes out to the distributor or to the – the retailer, and then they have to go and buy their cannabis retail before they can even try it. Well, that's kind of bizarre, right? Like imagine you're a, you're a vinter or a, a master brewer and you couldn't taste your wine or your beer during the production process. It's kind of, it's kind of insane, but that's what we've ended up with in the regulatory system. So, um, being in this legal system has really forced people to start saying, okay, we can't smoke the plants, So what we're going to do is send them all to a laboratory and then pick the one with the highest THC. Well, imagine you did that for whiskey or wine, right? You don't go into the wine store and say, okay, I need a, I need a nice Syrah with the highest alcohol content. It's just not the way that we consume those products. And so it's kind of weird that that has been the way that we're now marketing and advertising cannabis.
0: Yeah, wow, what a phenomenal explanation right there you raise such a brilliant analogy in regards to you know like the high alcohol content and something which has been brought up in prior episodes is this idea of should cannabis be treated just like tomatoes should it be treated like alcohol i guess it is a bit of a sort of complex question where do you sit on that one what do you think should be the general regulatory framework around cannabis or does it need its own new one
1: I think we have to take pieces of all the different regulatory systems. I'm of the opinion that cannabis is a drug, right? It's a psychoactive substance. And that doesn't mean that it's dangerous, but it does mean that we don't want to be, you know, I I was in high school and I was smoking cannabis. But I think if I was designing a regulatory system as an adult, that I would probably say, yeah, like kids under... Well, I don't know really want to set the age because it would probably be younger than most. But um, I think that there's probably enough scientific data to say, hey, yeah, we actually we shouldn't provide high THC cannabis to um, to kids under 18. And you know, not that I necessarily agree with that as a as a personal ethic, but I because I don't I don't believe that it's that as dangerous as it's made to seem. Um, but part of using psychoactive substances in any culture is a a taught experience, right? That's cultural information that's passed down from the elders to the younger generation. And I think that, you know, people need to be of a certain age to really appreciate how to truly start using these substances properly. Um, you know, when I was like 13 and 14 and sitting around the table at Christmas dinner, you know, the kids in my family, my brother and I, we were allowed to have a very small glass of wine. Um, you know, all the, all the parents were having it. And it's just kind of one of those things as kids is like, why don't we why don't we get to have a little taste, too? And I don't think there's anything dangerous of letting um, children have or not I'll say children, but young teens have a small taste of wine in the context of a family celebration um, at the dinner table. Do I want that child then going and taking a bottle of wine and hanging out with his friends? Probably not, right? Even though, you know, obviously most teens do that. They try to get beer or alcohol for the weekend. I think, again, as an adult, if I were designing a system for that, I probably wouldn't create a situation where it was easy for them to get access.
0: Right. Yeah, look, I wholeheartedly agree with you and nothing new here being said, but the the studies pretty conclusively show that a lot of European countries that follow the sort of style of introducing small amounts of alcohol in family settings, like it's shown to be beneficial because you're kind of normalizing it, right?
1: Yeah, well, you can't, I mean, if you want young adults to make responsible choices, you have to respect them and treat them as intelligent enough to make their own choice. Right. And part of that is giving them the tools so that when they do encounter these substances on their own later in life, that they know how to interact with them and, you know, reasonably. And that's kind of what I think are my my mom's, um, you know, her idea was uh, was behind letting us have small things about it is, again, it's cultural knowledge. It's part of teaching people how to interact with these substances, substances in a responsible way. Um, And I think this is don't you know this just say no all drugs are bad approach i mean it obviously doesn't work um and i think it sets up children for to believe you know because again you hear drugs are bad drugs are bad don't touch cannabis it's bad too and then when people try cannabis they realize that it's not what the elders told them it was right and then now you've created a situation where the younger generation doesn't trust the people that are trying to teach them life lessons on how to you know how to go about interacting with these substances through life so my personal opinion is to just be responsible and educated and arm the, the kids with as much information so that they can then go on and make responsible choices right
0: yeah hundred percent i am one of the biggest advocates you'll find of like harm reduction and i think that it's totally in line with that sort of philosophy A question which kind of stems off that a little bit, which I have been pondering myself, especially since picking up the vape as my preferred ingestion method, is that I do wonder if, as you referenced, you know, a lot of the younger generation, they they might have started out on dabs. And I feel like the question needs to be asked if that sort of excessive saturation of the THC receptors could have some deleterious effect, just in terms of maybe even just your own ability to enjoy the plant. I know that at periods of time when I've been smoking particularly heavy, you can kind of notice like you're not getting as high. What's your thoughts on that? Do you think that like some amount of self-restraint actually could lead to a more long-term enjoyment of the plant and the concentrates in general?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we, you know, we know this with opioid receptors and it's, it's showing true as well with cannabinoid receptors is that when you drive one of these neurochemical systems with an excess of the ligand or the molecule that is binding to these receptors that the receptors do something called they undergo a process called down regulation where they actually become fewer receptors. And that's kind of like a way to balance for you know, your, they, the cells want to maintain that level of signal that is being passed from the, the post synaptic presynaptic nerve to the postsynaptic nerve where the receptor is located. Right. So essentially we have um, a natural or endogenous signal you know, you can assign it any kind of value you want, call it a hundred that goes from the presynaptic nerve to the postsynaptic nerve terminal. And when we, when that, you know, your body has a natural level of endogenous opioids that exist and work in that system. And so when we smoke cannabis, what we're doing is we're driving that system harder. We're, we're putting in a molecule that mimics the endogenous ligand and that essentially overdrives the system. So we're, we're now we're giving the, the receptors a much greater signal than they're used to. And so for them to compensate, what they do is they, they downregulate the number of receptors and it kind of brings the, the nut, the amount of signal going from the previous nerve to the post nerve down into the similar type of line. And when we, when we then pull away that exogenous signal, we, t- we stop smoking cannabis your body is now compensated. So you're actually now getting too little signal. And that's a case of, um, you know, that's what we call withdrawal really. Right. Um, so yeah, I I think that it's probably, it's probably, it's, you know, in terms of using cannabis and being a cannabis user, tolerance breaks are really good for you. Um, people obviously need these compounds for using for medicine, but I don't think any of these, you know, I'm going to call them, Quote sacred plants, um, or, or medicinal plants. I don't think it's a great idea to be using them all the time, right? There's there's something to be said for taking breaks and having moments of clarity. And you know, if you do that, you take a couple of weeks off of consuming cannabis, you will find, just like you said, that when you go back to it, the same amount that you were using two weeks ago has a much greater effect. Um, so that's one thing on that topic. Another thing that's kind of interesting on the topic uh, that I don't think any um, any markets have really truly embraced yet is the type two cannabis. So, cannabis that has a balance of CBD and THC. Of you know, most people know the the, the variety canatonic from from resin seeds in Spain, um, and that's that's a, a type two plant. And the thing that makes type two plants you know, different from the high THC plants is that they produce about 50% of their um, total cannabinoid fraction is CBD rather than THC. And there's just the beginnings of uh, scientific research that are being done in kind of the neuroscience community and the health community that show that having that little bit of a CBD buffer in your experience actually might provide some um some safety against the things that you were talking about, you know, over, overdriving driving your system with massive amounts of dabs all the time. Right. Um, so th- there might even be a safety aspect to, to having CBD and in the context, again, of what we were talking about before with children or kids under 20, you know, maybe the solution is to have them only have access to type two cannabis, right? They don't get access to have access of, of the really, truly potent stuff until they turn 18 or 20. Um, I don't know how you would go about enforcing that, but it's, you know, it's something to consider. I think that that whole area of the CBD buffer is something that um, really hasn't been explored very much by the community, and I, I think it has a potential for use.
0: Yeah, of course, of course. And I think a a topic in general which we're kind of skirting around slash touching on a little bit is something which a lot of people really don't want to acknowledge is that there can be like sort of downsides or excessive use of cannabis. And I think a lot of people are really just so invested in this idea of cannabis is 100% safe, it's non-harmful. And I always have a bit of a problem with that because it's like, there's many cases of like people smoking cannabis and then unfortunately running in front of a car like not on purpose but like i just find it hard to stomach when people just raise it They're like there's no possible downsides to it kids i i started smoking 12 years old it should be fine and as you've said like it is worth considering if that's actually a realistically true statement because your kind of experience as a child doesn't represent everyone's and it's it is worth considering what's best for a 12 year old a or 15 year old or an 18 year Old. so yeah i really like that sentiment you'd express right there
1: yeah well and just like there's different types of cannabis i think people need to be aware that you know human our our individual neurochemical makeup is different from person to person um and so it's not only necessarily about the chemistry of the plant there's variability in the chemi- in the neurochemistry of the population and we really don't know um, You know, I, I have a lot of friends and they're just like, cannabis isn't for me. Or I had friends that were in, you know, I was in high school with and I used to smoke with them. And then they got a little bit older and they they tell me, you know, I just, I just realized it wasn't good for me. It wasn't making me feel healthy, mentally stable. I, I knew another lovely little, not a lovely little girl, but a lovely girl. And she was in her early thirties. And when I met her, she was smoking a fair bit of cannabis and she got right into it. And I watched her go through a mental spiral. Like I've never seen on anyone. And, you know, to the point that she thought that there was people in the, in, in the light switches in the, you know, the electrical outlets. And then, you know, she was putting like tinfoil on top of light fixtures and stuff. It was really bizarre behavior, but she definitely wasn't using any other drug and the cannabis wasn't helping her. So, um, to have this, and and I actually substituted her cannabis. I took all our cannabis away from her, gave her a bunch of CBD cannabis that had no THC in it. And, um, it, it seemed to help a little bit, but at that point in time, I think again, she had, she had overdriven her endocannabinoid system so hard that just with her particular neurochemistry, it didn't work for her. Um, so anybody that says, you know, all cannabis is medicine and, You know, it's no matter how you use it, it's medical. That to me is just not true Um, because I've seen it, right? I've seen it happen and it's well documented in the scientific literature and the medical literature um, that there is a small subset of people and we don't know whether it's their genetics or their neurochemistry, but whatever it is, cannabis doesn't interact well with them. And um, when you're looking at creating a regulated market or a system as a government official, you have to be thinking about the lowest common denominator, right? You have to make your safety barriers safe for everybody, not just the top 90%, right? It's not okay just if 10% people suffer from using a product. So, um, yeah, being aware of the different types of cannabis, I think, is important. But also, this idea that all cannabis use is harmless... Is probably not a, I don't think that's a really responsible way to think about it, you know?
0: So just to jump back to the concentrates topic we were discussing a moment ago, something which has always been an interest to me is that. I can't remember who it was, unfortunately, but they pointed out to me that a lot of the technology and especially the techniques used in extraction processing these days are actually very old school technology. Like there's patents going back to the 1920s and 30s, which outline a lot of the methods currently being used and sort of presented as like the cutting edge. I figured right. you'd, you'd be better to ask than anyone. Have you seen any genuine new advances in extraction, or do you feel like it's true to what I said, where it is all kind of rehashed old technology?
1: Yeah, I mean, although, you know, we've had a lot of really great chemists in the world, phytochemists in the world, for 150 years at least. Um, and it's kind of one of those those stories where there's nothing new under the sun, Right. Um, maybe people are modifying old techniques, but yeah, this is all like, you know, even distillation for THC or, you know, fractional distillation, or for example, the, the butane extracts, um, those type of, of of alkane carbohydrate or, or, uh, those, those, those alkane extractions, they all really have their roots in other industries and maybe people are changing things a little bit, temperature, all that kind of stuff to optimize it, but I think for the most part, it's not, most of it's not that new. Um, It's just new to cannabis, because cannabis is, because of prohibition, it's been left out of so many different systems. A lot of people just couldn't touch the plant, right? You know, 30 years ago, you had to be pretty rebellious to actually be braving the penalties. Um, And it just, it kept a lot of people that can teach the cannabis community different techniques or or sets of knowledge it just kept them away um so at least in canada now we're starting to integrate all that you know we're able to collaborate with people in in existing industries um and tap into all that that knowledge base that they have right because again cannabis is just another plant um it's a different plant but you know we can use all the same kind of science that we use on all the other plants in the world
0: yeah a hundred percent and i mean in line with that idea i think i was reading an article written by a cbd extractor who was trying to figure out why they were getting such high returns on their cbd extractions and what they hypothesized was that some of the terpenes you find in cbd cultivars the type 2 cultivars may actually be acting as kind of like almost an industrial solvent in the process and helping to extract more things through that solvent being present have you heard anything about this? And if that were to be true, do you think that might indicate that breeding for certain terpene predominance could be like a good idea if your main goal is extraction? Um, I don't know if they would aid in extraction.
1: You can definitely optimize cultivars through breeding for extraction. Um, that was one of the things that we did when I was down in California is we were, we were not only looking at the terpene profiles of plants, but actually measuring their overall terpene output. We were kind of one of the first groups to do that. And, um, you know, we were finding plants. You typically, we had a, we called the, you know, our friends at SC labs called it the swag flag, but we typically would eliminate any plant that was under 1% total terpene content. If it didn't have, um, you know, 10 milligrams of terpenes per gram that was out. It just didn't make the list unless it had some other characteristic that was so unique about the plant. You know, for example, we came across a THCV plant that we kept um, because that's a really rare cannabinoid, but the terpene profile on the plant sucked. It was horrible. It smelled like hemp and it wasn't, it wasn't oily. It was just not really tasty to consume. And, um, so that became one of our lower limits and we through time we would raise that number um you know one and a half two percent for of terpene content and anything below that we wouldn't keep because the idea was to be making these plants produce as much not only the right complement of terpene the right set of terpenes but also we wanted to have them produce more terpenes right and there's definitely a whole lot of world there where we can be taking, you know, because it might be for example, we're talking about making dabs and you want to have a full, I'm going to call I hate the word, but I'm going to use it anyway The these full terpene extract plants <laughs> you know, you, you might want to have end up with a dab or with a, a, a you know, your concentrate that is really high in terpenes, but say it only has 40% total cannabinoids Right. As opposed to a lot of terpenes and 80 percent total cannabinoids. And I'm sure most of the community is probably listening to me say those things right now and thinking, well, that's not what I want. Um, But again, getting back to this discussion where we were talking about how things make you feel, um, there definitely is going to be a whole subset of the population that for them, you know, they're not they don't want to drink whiskey. they want to drink wine. (laughs) right? They want to, they want to vape on a pen all night, not have one puff and be comatose. And this is something that I hear from a lot of, you know, the older hippies that I'm in touch with in the community. You know, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of funny when, when you say it that way, but it's like, you know, it's like, Oh, you kids today, your music is too loud. It's like, Oh, you kids today, your weed is just too strong, but it's true for them. Right. You know, I bring over an OG Kush to a party at like, uh, you know, a, a family members an older family member's house, and pass it around the campfire, and they're out, right? They're staring at the wall for the next three hours, and th- they don't just—they don't want that. Rick, like, why would you want that? That's not fun, right? I mean, for you know, for every occasional kind of thing, but that's just to them. That's not what cannabis was, right? Cannabis was something that they could sit around the the campfire and smoke all night and enjoy the flavor of their of their dube, right? Um, so there's something to be said about, about breeding plants that have lots of flavor and they don't punch you in the face when you smoke them. Right. Um, it may not be for you. It may not be for everybody, but I think that we have to start thinking about making cannabis more accessible to other people. And how can we do that? Right. What are the things we need to do that? Is it using these type two varieties with a little bit of CBD in them? You know, maybe even, even in, in Switzerland, you know, I don't know if you've heard about uh, the CBD markets. They're now selling CBD cigarettes in grocery stores in Switzerland. And um, they're type 3 plants, which have, you know, lots of CBD and almost no THC in them. They're, they're, they're effectively hemp. But if you can make hemp taste like an OG Kush or you can make it taste like a really flavorful haze or something really nice that's it's nice for people to consume... Again, it might not be what most of the people listening to this podcast want, but if we can create a whole nother segment of the population that are embracing cannabis and benefiting from cannabis, um, I think that that's great and they don't need to be high. You know, it's, it's, I think it's just great that we can have more people having a relationship with this fantastic plant.
0: Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree, and I think it is one of those things where when you are an everyday smoker, just puffing away on your OG kush, it does seem like a very foreign idea, and I am a little bit guilty of falling into that trap you mentioned of, you know, old people wanting the, the less strong weed, and just kind of being a bit perplexed at the idea, but nowadays I find myself in that same position, and I've got this newfound appreciation for the orange strains, which... Maybe classically aren't considered as strong, but boy is the flavor nice.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And the truth is we can bring breed those things to to be high THC. We can breed them to be a mixed ratio of C B T to THC, and we can also breed those same flavors to be into C B D plants. Right? That's just a matter of of making the right crosses and selections. And um, I think I, one of the things I love about cannabis is the diversity that it brings as a plant. And, you know, who am I to say now only these ones are the ones that we're going to use. I, I kind of see my job as a breeder is to make all the different types available. And then the doctors and the stoners and, the, and you know, everybody's going to figure out what works for them, the patients. But at least they have the opportunity to do that when we can provide this broad selection of chemotypes. Um, you know, not everybody needs the THC stuff. That's great if you'd like the THC stuff. I like the THC stuff. I mean, that's kind of where that's kind of my go to. I'm not saying don't use high THC cannabis. But I'm just saying if if we can have more people have a relationship with cannabis because we make them tasty tasty cultivars of high C B D, low THC, you know, flour, that's to me, that's a win.
0: Yeah. No, I I wholeheartedly agree. So, uh, just to jump back to kind of some terpene talk for just a moment, I'd love to hear your thoughts on whether you feel that it's becoming a more common trend that people are adding terpenes either to concentrates, maybe even trying to infuse flour that is maybe a bit less than ideal in its terpene content with external uh, terpenes. Do you feel like this is deleterious, advantageous, and do you feel like there's any benefit? Because there's a lot of discussion around, oh, it's non-cannabis-derived terpenes, and that's inferior to cannabis-derived terpenes. But the the inner chemist in me thinks, mere scenes, mere scene, man. Like, you know, what's your thoughts?
1: Yeah, same. I will just bring it back to water. I mean, you can make, you know, you can make water in a lab by combining hydrogen and oxygen, or you can take um sewer water and distill out pure water right which one would you rather drink the truth is is if, if you purify them both they're both just water right it's the same thing no matter what the source is so to me water is water is water it's what's what's it contaminated with and that's the question so there's two questions a is it contaminated okay so we're getting myrcene from a different plant that's fine are we co-extracting anything else with the myrcene you know, so what are the contaminants in that that bottle of myrcene that you're buying to dump on your flower or, or add to your concentrates? That's the question. Um, so what's the contaminant? What's the levels of those contaminants? And what's the health consequences of those, of those contaminants? Um, because plants make compounds that are poisonous to humans. It's <laughs> right. That's what they do. They try to defend themselves from us um, and from, you know, any any plant that's a, a herbivorous um, someone that's a you know plant or an animal that's attacking a plant. So these defense compounds can actually be bad for you. So maybe we're going into some, you know, call it some weird lemongrass or something like that to try and find some terpenes to put into our cannabis. It, it, the, the potential is there that if there were um, a secondary metabolite produced by the plant that was poisonous to humans, that we co-extract it and now that's in with the myrcene right and then that mercury enters the or that me- that contaminated Myrcene enters the supply chain well that could be a problem the other thing that could be a problem is when we when we consume cannabis there's natural physiological levels of these chemicals that the plant can produce and the last 30 40 years of science seems to show that there's no deleterious effect on human health by using those but it could be if we start making, you know, it might, you know, ter- a lot of these these limonene, limone, terpenylene, pinene, a lot of these terpenes, as you were saying earlier, they're solvents, right? They 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 can dissolve cannabinoids, but they can actually also dissolve like certain types of plastic or rubber. You know, Sam Skunkman was telling me a story, about they had this haze plant that they used to harvest in California, I believe it was, and they had these rubber rings that sat on the top of the jars and they would close off and the rubber would seal in the jar. But if you li- you left the them in there for three or four months, the Terps would actually dissolve away the, the rubber. Um, so there's a potential issue with all these plastics that we're using to, you know, to hold cannabis, especially the cheaper stuff. And again, in a non-regulated market, nobody's paying attention to these things. Um, and they could have potential health consequences. For example, if you if you're making high terp dabs and you're putting them in these plastic containers, you can actually see sometimes when you when you clean out the container that the plastic has started to melt. And did that did that plastic then melt into the dabs? Right? Are you now consuming these things? So there's a lot of health issues um, that I think we have to really keep at the forefront of our planning as we go about creating regulated markets all over the world. Um, and it doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it, but it just means that we should have some kind of thought and really careful due diligence before just doing whatever we want as if, you know, as if the way that we've done things in the black market have, have been the right way to do things, right? We've done them out of necessity typically for the past 50 years, but it, we might learn and we are learning with some of the chemicals that we spray on the plant that these things stick around, right? The the story used to be: oh, if you're veg, if you're in veg, don't worry about it. You can spray on the plant. That's not going to end up in the flower. But shit, we started doing the testing, and it's like, you know what? It all ends up in the flower, right? So a lot of the practices that we've had in black markets, um, they're not going to be the practices that we use in regulated markets, and that's okay, right? It's all about advancing the, our understanding and creating a safe industry where. People can use cannabis in as, you know, like you said, from a harm reduction point of view, it's as safe as it's as safe as it can be.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Words of wisdom right there. And I think, you know, you touch on a brilliant point that we've we've come a long way since the days of mycobutrinol and uh, butane soup. But. I guess a topic which stems from that and what you just discussed is there's a lot of current discussion and maybe even a bit of necessary discussion around vape pens, particularly the ones that come from, say, China or other areas of the world where the the manufacturing standards are maybe a little less than what they are in other Western countries. Do you think that because of this issue and the necessity for there to be high quality assurance of quality, that basically we will see the falling off of that or do you think that you know china and maybe even african produced products will eventually creep into the market over time and become the new dominant force at play
1: Well, i think china is the dominant force at play in all the vape technology that we have at least in north america most of that stuff's not produced and i think i actually don't know any of it that's actually produced in north america um it all comes from china and you know, I've, I've got friends and relationships with people in some of these large Canadian multi-billion dollar companies, and I know, you know, through speaking with them about um, the issues that they've had in doing the due diligence. I mean, if you're going to, if you're a big, massive company and you're going to put vape pens onto the market, you know, we've got, call it 35 million people here in Canada, it's a little more, but call it a market of, you know, call it 5 to 10 million users. That's a lot of, that's a lot of hardware that you need to ensure that you're not going to run out that you have a supply and being able to do the due diligence on the safety of those products coming from china i mean you know if you're ordering five hundred thousand vape pens or a million vape pens you buy them from one company and then they're like they're like we can't actually produce those all ourselves and they go and they outsource them to another company right so you have to be doing all this batch testing because again if you're putting a product onto the market it's your ass, right? It's your responsibility to make sure that it's safe. If it comes back and it's not safe, it's your shareholders that are going to suffer, not China. Um, so they have to do these really deep dives into the, you know, upstream to the manufacturers. They go over there, they check their metals, they check the solders that they're putting, that they're using to fuse the parts together to wire the, you know, the pens and everything. So you're really Again, all these things, like cannabis has been left out of all these systems for so long because it's a black market, and people could just do whatever they want. And you know, I, I remember being, you know, in my younger years, and it's like if you couldn't score, and finally you, you got something, you were stoked, right? Just because you got something, you were able to you're able to, to find your weed. I wasn't a, a beer drinker or anything, so when I was in high school and university, I didn't really consume alcohol. Um, cannabis was my thing. And so if I ever didn't have cannabis and you had to go and buy, you know, you're on the street looking for something and it was just supply and demand. It was what was available. Um, and if you could find something, then you were satisfied. But that's probably not a very good, you know, way to go about doing things, right? Like if you're if you're looking for steak, you're not just going to pick up any old meat that's lying on the, on the supermarket floor or on the road, right? You want to be buying high-quality products where you know where they come from and you know that they've been – made with respect um and treated with respect and the plants have not been sprayed with pesticides right you don't want to consume all that kind of stuff it's just not good for you and inevitably in a black market you do see a ton of that i mean in california we did some studies and vast vast amounts of the the cannabis that's on the market is like you said it's got microbutanil in it or it's got mold on it or it's got a bacteria growing on it um and that's not all right. You know, in, in the legal food production systems, when there's, you know, we had one couple of weeks ago, onions were coming up from the States, red onions, and they had uh, salmonella on them. So a legal market, we have recall systems to recall all that product and make sure that it doesn't get into the hands of people. And when it does get into the hands of people, it's on the news. So everybody knows, Hey, don't eat your onions, right? Take them off the menu. Um, Cause people are going to get sick and, Black market cannabis systems don't have those safeguards. Um, And we we need them, right? A lot of growers are, you know, they get week five, week four even. All of a sudden they get a big spider mite um, infestation that's going to kill the crop. And they got two choices. You kill the crop and start again. Or you spray it with some ungodly chemical and cross your fingers, and that way you can pay your mortgage. Unfortunately, you know, paying the mortgage is its one of the major excuses for, for many, many evils in the world today. People are just doing it because they're trying to get by. And so you can understand why it happens. There's not a lot of honor in putting those products in the market. But again, when people are desperate for money or just paying the bill or, or just trying to get by or feed their families – they often make choices that aren't in the best interests of the people that are going to be consuming their plants. And really in, again, in black market systems, they don't know the people that are consuming their weed. They sell it to a guy and it gets shipped or it gets, you know, sold to a bunch of people they don't know. And so there are a certain amount of people that will, they'll just spray it and, and not care about the consequences downstream. So regulated systems, they, they, there are a lot of good things about them. It's a pain in the ass to work in them, but It's kind of the right thing to do
0: yeah of course and I think that a lot of the frustration that comes from the growers and in engaging in these systems is uh, an idea you touched on earlier in that because historically they've never had to really pay attention to quality control quality assurance it now seems like this big boogeyman when in reality it's a part of every established industry in the world. And I think that if we do want to end up being like a wine industry or some sort of terroir-based industry, then there has to be a certain acceptance that these are just the necessary scaffolds that need to be put in place.
1: Yeah, and it's about pride in your product, right? Um, I know there's people that just make products because they just want to sell them, make some money. and But those aren't the products that I want to consume. right? I, I like products that are made by artisans or that are... You know, or grown by a farmer with pride for his for what he's making. Um, same with wine, you know. But same with vegetables, too. I mean, and, and meats. It's the same thing. When people, they understand the art and the science of their, you know, their chosen field, they take pride in the work that they're doing. And I don't know how you could be pr- proud of putting cannabis on the market that you knew had a pesticide or a fungicide sprayed on it.
0: Yeah, of course. So, onto a little bit of a somewhat controversial topic, but it's one I do feel really personally invested in tobacco and cannabis. Given we've discussed how we should be doing everything we can to kind of minimize the potential harmful compounds that are within cannabis pesticides um, heavy metals from vape carts do you feel like there should be somewhat of an active effort to discourage the use of tobacco in conjunction with cannabis like what we see around general tobacco use or do you think it's just an each to their own sort of thing
1: no i, I think that we should actively tell people not to put tobacco in their cannabis it's insane i mean tobacco is a bronchioconstrictor, constrictor right if you smoke Tobacco, your lungs close on you automatically. When you smoke cannabis, your lungs open up. It's a bronchodilator, and so when you mix the two, we, this, health ca- the health minister in Canada, I think it was like about twenty years ago, it might have even been twenty five years ago. I remember her coming out and saying, "We're really not too too concerned about people consuming cannabis. What we're con- concerned about is the mixing the two together, because again, the cannabis opens up your lungs, and it allows all those really bad things that are put on into into tobacco." And that just to, that those chemicals that are a result of, of tobacco combustion, we don't need to be breathing that in. It doesn't add to the experience. Um, and it's, again, it's a cultural thing. It's, you know, I think it's, it ties back to the use of tobacco and hookahs. Um, it, it became the norm in, in Spain before the cannabis culture really got going in Spain, kind of in the late 90s, early 2000s. It was a hash-consuming country. And so that they would get hash from Morocco and they'd mix it with tobacco and they'd smoke it that way. And that became the norm. Same with Italy. Both countries are really quite accepting of tobacco. It's just a cultural norm. Um, and even in Holland, right? Like, I don't know if you've ever been to Amsterdam, but if you go to a coffee shop in Amsterdam, you'll see a, a Dutch guy come in from the end of his work day and he'll sit down and ask for... Um, a half gram or a gram of, of hash from the dealer, and they'll take out a full cigarette and of one of these long jumbo-sized papers, and they break the entire cigarette out. And they might take, you know, a tenth of a gram or two tenths of a gram and break up the hash into that, and then they roll that in their entire cigarette and smoke the whole thing to themselves. Well, it's to me, I mean that I, the taste of that alone would be enough for me to say just don't do it. But from a health perspective, I think that it it really makes the worst things about the tobacco more harmful, right? So from a harm reduction perspective, don't smoke tobacco with your cannabis. From a taste perspective, Jesus, please don't smoke <laughs> tobacco cannabis, right? And I listen. I grew up in Ottawa, um, which is very close to Montreal, which is a port city, kind of on the eastern side of of Canada. And so we would have a lot of hashish that would, that would come in through the Montreal port, you know, being like two or two and a half hours away. That was the predominant form of cannabis that was available when I was younger. And it wasn't until I was a little bit older that we started seeing some cannabis flowers, um, back then, whether it was the police or the genetics that were available to be grown outside or the availability, you know, the lack of supply, all of these things together, created the situation where we just didn't have cannabis flowers. It was, we were hash smokers and I lived right on the border of Quebec, which is the French speak, uh, speaking part of, of, of Canada. And they have a lot of ties back to France, of course, culturally. And again, in France, you know, it's in between Spain and, and Italy. That's, you know, they're, they're also hash smokers and, and great tobacco smokers. It's just, it's part of the culture. Um, so I believe as our, you know, I came to a point where I was like, I'm going to try to stop not smoking with tobacco. I was buying cigarettes just to have tobacco to be, to mix in with my joints. Um, and you know, I got to the point where I was like, forget this, I'm just going to start smoking with cannabis. And I remember I was a a music band at the time and some of my friends that were in the band, they were like, oh, we can't, it's too harsh. When you smoke it without, it's too harsh. And it feels that way for about the first two weeks, but after you get accustomed to smoking without cannabis, you actually change the way that you smoke. You you draw the air differently in. Um, I think you, you rather than taking these long draws on the joint, you take smaller draws with larger breaths of air at the same time. So you're kind of titrating down the smoke, and uh, you get to the point where where you just it tastes so much better. You wouldn't go back if you had to. And when someone passes you a joint, like if I'm, you know, if I'm out at a party, Sam on the east side of Canada, again, smoking with tobacco is a lot more prominent than it is on the west coast. And so, if you're at a party, someone passes you a joint, and you have a taste of it, or you get, you know, you get it halfway down your throat, and your lungs immediately slam shut um, because they just don't want that tobacco smoke in there. Um, so I, I, I'm really against it. I'm really against tobacco as a whole. I don't. I think it's. I've seen the damage it does to people. Um, And I just don't think it's a good thing to be consuming if you don't have to. And you certainly don't need to be consuming it with cannabis. And it's kind of like putting orange juice in a fine wine,
0: you know. <laughs> yeah, well, wow. so many things you just said, which I just so heavily relate to, you know. I think I just agree with everything you said. And as, as someone who's never smoked a cigarette in my life, but at one point was addicted to tobacco th- purely through smoking it with weed... I think that I can agree with you that, that after you get through that first two weeks, you're like, wow, this is such a better world to be in. But I'd love to just quickly jump back to something you touched on because we did have uh, one of the friends of the show, Dyer submit a question which relates perfectly to the hash sort of comment you made. And he was wondering, what's your thoughts on the old school Moroccan imported hash? Did you love it? Did you hate it? Where do you stand?
1: Well, <laughs> It's kind of like everything in the cannabis world. I mean, I love it for what it is. I've been to Morocco a couple of times now. Um, I've traveled there a little bit on my own, and I actually went with Rob Clark, and we had a little trip and went and saw some growers that we knew down there and really got to see all about the culture. It's a great thing to see. I think from a... You know, when I went the last time, I had already been working in these regulated models. So when I started going back and seeing the way that things were done on such a massive scale, there's a lot of gross things that are, you know, there's no real high, just no real sense of hygiene in the process um, or in the cultivation. It's just not really thought of. And and we've seen through some of the studies that have been done, even in like Dutch coffee shops, that you know, for example, like if you're trimming your weed. And someone goes off to the washroom, doesn't wash their hands after they use the washroom. You can get like E. coli on the flowers, right? And that's pretty gross. <laughs> um, and it's not—it's—it's it's completely avoidable, right? is the other thing. Um, and so these systems—they don't—they don't—they don't have any of these safety protocols. They don't have standard operating procedures. They don't have protocols for maintaining the quality of the flour from a consumer safety perspective. Um, the other thing about it is it's the market has changed. So even, even when the first time I went, which is, I don't, I think it was 2011. It might even have been a little before then, but around that time it was, they were going through a transition where the Moroccans had started adopting, um, advanced agricultural techniques so for example they were growing feminized seeds from holland but rather than just scatter seed i mean the way they used to do it they'd, they'd harvest all the seeds at the end of the year when you when you're harvesting acres of cannabis that's seeded like moroccan is you separate the 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 resins from the plant right through screening or this, this batter beating technique, which I don't know if you've seen online, but you know, people can Google it and you can look on YouTube. They essentially put in a bag and then they beat the the bag with sticks and the sticks knock the resin glands off the flower and then they collect the resin glands. So there's no real, there's no real safety consideration in doing that. It's just kind of done, right? Because for them, they all know that it's black market but the truth is, is, if you're up in Morocco, up in the in the Rift Mountains, and you have land, like you're paying for your house and your way of life and everything, by with cannabis. I mean, if you go up there and you drive around, you'll see driving through the Rift, the biggest houses—they're all surrounded by cannabis fields, right? And so this is what the point was: is that they're they're bringing in these feminized seeds, and now they lay drip emitters down. And they plant the feminized seeds on drip lines. Whereas what they used to do was harvest all the seeds after they'd beat the resin glands off the hash. They'd collect the seeds. And then the next year, they would actually just walk around the property with bags of seeds and scatter seed them by just tossing out handfuls of seed. Um, So you get a lot of, it's kind of grown a little bit more like hemp than they do drug cannabis. You get a lot more plants per square foot. Um, They grow very tall and thin um with top colas and not a lot of side branching. And that was kind of the traditional method of, of production for farmers in Morocco. Now if you go down and you go up into the rift, you'll see they've got these like, you know, they've dug into the side of these mountains like pretty much Olympic swimming pool sized pools to hold the water. Um, so when it rains in the winter they collect all that water and they line them with, with big plastics, uh big plastic or rubber mats. And that holds all the water in. Um, so they have these huge reservoirs from which to feed their plants. And they take that water and they pump it out and they inject chemical nutrients from uh, a lot of it comes from Holland. But, you know, it's that, it's that same kind of chemical fertilizers that everybody else in the in the, the blue crystals kind of thing. Um, because the, the the places that they're growing in Morocco... It's not even really soil. It's more rock and dust than any kind of organic material in the soil. And so they really just turn it into a massive hydroponic, hydroponic bed, right, with the drippers providing all the nutrients that the plant needs. Um, and again, growing feminized seeds by the 10, 20, 30-acre plot. Um, so not a lot of love given to the plants. It's all about bulk. Um they don't understand the concept of, you know, you know, Howard Marks, funnily enough, went through the same thing in Morocco when when he was there. He was asking for, you know, I, I don't want as much hash. I just want better quality. And they just didn't understand that. It was like, we'll just we'll just make more. Right. And it's like, no, we don't want more. We actually want less of the stuff that we don't want in there. Um, so do I think that those things will be available as they are in the new market no they won't right because it's probably not it's probably not the best way of doing things doing things can you take those production practices and make them um applicable or, or safe to do in a regulated market absolutely you can make products like the Moroccan hashes um and some people will love those things But again, just transferring over the way that it's always been done into a regulated market, I just don't see it happening.
0: In line with what you just mentioned is, what's your opinion on people going to these sort of land race or indigenous areas and trading modern feminized genetics for the cultivars? Like notably, strain hunters and Aryan have done that a lot and they cop a lot of flack for it. Do you think that's deserved or do you think it's not as harmful as people might make out?
1: Well, I think there's two things to realize. Like, for example, Morocco, it, cannabis wasn't grown in Morocco until like 1,300 years ago. So they were brought, those populations were brought there. Really, what they were growing even till a couple of hundred years ago, or maybe 150 years ago, maybe it wasn't even that long. It could have been less. They were, it was actually really a hemp variety, right? It wasn't, they weren't really potent cannabis. And that's why they made it into hashish, because it concentrated it enough that you'd get high but the moroccans that's not how that they would consume their cannabis and to this day they still don't consume the resin glands they mix flower tops with little bits of tobacco and that's how they smoke it it's not it's not used the way we smoke it to consume the same concentration of the drug they they kind of again like maybe like dj's ways that they were they were they were using a less amount of the drug and just to get a slight effect and that was the that was the really the purpose for them. Truthfully, the DEA has gone around the world. I mean, they've spent the last, you know, maybe not the last 20 years, but certainly the 20 years before that going around the world and paying the Thai government and paying the Indian government and paying the Afghanistani government to go out and conduct anti-cannabis raids, right? Go Go out and have these programs to go out and cut the fields down in fact at one point in time it was the un uh, the the un office of drug control it was their policy to actually make cannabis extinct like that was one of the un's world goals was to make cannabis extinct right that's insane like imagine the un's having one of their mandates to make a species go and ins- it's extinct it's just bizarre um but it was all ideologically driven right so I think the truth is is that most of the cannabis that's been grown in those land, what people call land race populations and the cultures that grew those land races, for example, the Thai culture that grew the, the really fine Thai sticks, that's gone. Like those, those things just don't really exist anymore. They might have like little dots of them around the country in very small sp- spots, but it's not a cultural phenomenon like it used to be. It's not a way of life. And so the lessons that they had to teach, the cultural practices they had to teach, those ways are probably gone. The genetics, at least the diversity, is mostly gone. Um, And from a farming point of view, I mean, if you're a farmer in Thailand or India or the Congo, you know, you're talking about the strain hunters. If you're a farmer in those places, you want the best product that you're going to grow like if somebody has a a a variety of corn that yields 10 times as much and that means that you can have 10 times as much you know profit or return from your crop or 10 times as much food to feed your family you're going to do it right because these folks probably don't understand the 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 intricacies of protecting the global diversity of cannabis um and that's kind of the way we are in most of these species with most species now is that these centers of origin as we call them or centers of diversity of most crop species are are gone or they're threatened all around all around the world just because of human activity and so at this point in time we really rely on what we call ex situ or or you know collections that are taken and and kept out of the place where they were produced because the environment's changing and these, these ecosystems are threatened and that's what we do. We have the the point, unfortunately the point that we have to do that now is that we just have to collect these things as they are and try to preserve the diversity. And I think that if we're trying to, you know, blame Ariane or blame anybody for going and polluting the, polluting these germplasm, these genetic pools, the truth is, is those genetic pools are mostly depleted anyway. Um, and those farmers, have have you know i think it's kind of hard to argue that those farmers don't have every right that all the the local cannabis or you know all our domestic cannabis growers to, to 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 produce the newest most commercially viable plants that's what they that's what farmers want to do they want to stay competitive right
0: yeah and i i think that you know when if you if you look at it on a human level you can totally relate to the point you made about you know people are trying to feed their families you know it's not it's not all this like grand oversight driven sort of actions taking place an idea that one of our past guests Erasen brought up and he's a, a lovely guy from India who's done some land race expeditions and preservation efforts of his own he raised this interesting idea which i think makes a lot of sense to me in that He said, as you pointed out, these these cultivars are disappearing on their own for various reasons. It's not like strain hunters is the sole reason for that. But he raised this idea of like, if you do have these seeds, it's kind of your due diligence to try to get them out there and not just sit on the stock forever and like sort of hoard it in a way. Do you feel like that's an idea you can get down with?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, and that's kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because, again, we have systems in the world for regulating the use of plants or, you know, for example, UPOV kind of oversees the, the naming and describing of what is a different plant type and they award, you know, rights to the, the plant breeders for, you know, you breed a new apple, for example, you, you get the commercial rights to produce that apple. But one of the things that comes up with that is that, yeah, you get the 20 years of commercial rights to grow that apple and profit from it exclusively, but the trade-off is that you have to make that apple tree available to other plant breeders. And the idea behind that is that plant genetic resources are really a global, um, you know, I'm going to call them, I'm going to say it's a human right to use them, but I think that humans (laughs) kind of, we put ourselves first on the planet a little too much Um, but the truth is, is that everybody on the planet has the right to access different types of germplasm. If you protect, if you invent a new plant and you want to, you want to get intellectual property rights on it, that's one thing, but really that's fine to get the commercial rights to benefit from that exclusively, but we, we also do have a duty to maintain these plants and plant species and plant populations in a way where they're more accessible, um, to everybody. And again, call it an echo of prohibition. I call you know, echoes of prohibition being the things that we've, that we're still doing wrong because we learned to do them through prohibition. One of the echoes of prohibition is, oh, if you want that, you know, if you want the seed that I have, then you have to pay me for it. Um, and it's kind of just the way it is, you know, I, and so I have all these populations and I, you know, the, the, idea is to eventually get them all out and share them all in some regard. Um, but it took a lot of work to create, to collect these things and I don't want to pass them on to someone that doesn't know how to, to preserve them properly. Right. Cause the idea again is that we're, we're really custodians of the cannabis gene pool. It's not ours. It doesn't like no plant breeder owns the, all the cannabis that they have. It's just that you're a custodian for it for the future generations of people that are going to use it. Um, and I think that that's a really important attitude to have when, when going about cannabis preservation work is that, no, it's not your Alcapulco gold or your Mexican variety or your Indian variety. It's like these, you know these seeds have cultural heritage attached to them, and there's there's history and people that preserve them for us, right? In fact, there's you know there, there's something called the CBD, which is funnily enough it's CBD. It's the um what is it again? I'm I'm having a mind mind moment here, where I'm not recognizing what it is. But essentially, it's like a A program of biological diversity, um, an agreement of biological diversity between all these plants or all these countries to protect the diversity. Because what's typically happened is Western countries have gone to these poor um, third world countries looking for plants to collect and take back and turn them into a pharmaceutical product. Right, where the culture that maintained that plant or discovered that plant, they don't have any benefit from them, right? They don't they don't earn any benefit from them. So there's something called the Nagoya Protocol, and people can again Google that. But the Nagoya Nagoya Protocol essentially says, for all the signatory countries, that if you know if you're a Spanish company or you're a, a Dutch company, they're both signatories, you can't just go down to Africa and start pilfering seeds. Right. And then taking them back and profiting them. And in that sense, you know, it could well be that Ariane is actually violating that protocol, that protocol, um, that agreement that his government has signed to, where if you're going to go down and exploit that genetic diversity or that cultural diversity, that genetic diversity that's produced by the culture, that they're entitled to some of the profits. Um, and it just stops the more advanced countries of the world, or the more developed countries of the world, from going around and exploiting the the folks that aren't quite as developed yet.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think history has shown that a lot of the less developed countries have sadly copped the, the short end of the stick without these sort of regulations in place. So hopefully our buddy Aryan hasn't violated any laws in that regard. Um, <laughs> A question I'd just love to run by you before we jump back to the beginning, so to speak, is on the topic of Indigenous land races, one of the really good questions we got from one of our listeners was they were interested in knowing, you know, in line with Irizen, a former guest of ours, having done some land race expeditions, and he did hint that there are still some Indigenous stuff out there. It's obviously just near and far when you come across it. Are there any Indigenous cultivars or land race strains that, in your mind, you would really love to work with if you had the chance.
1: Yeah, well, I think if I, I mean, it would be really nice to be able to go back to those varieties of yesterday with the technologies of today, and start doing some real exploring using science. Um, I've you know I've got little collections of relatively exotic things in the collection. I've got some ties and you know some Mexicans, the highland Mexican. And some other, you know, all different Colombians, all these different things. The truth is, is when you start exploring land race population, there's a lot of dogs, right? There's a lot of plants that are way, way substandard in there for whatever reason. Um, And so honestly, it's kind of a hassle to to be working with land race populations. Um, Even if you're breeding modern day corn, you don't go back to the varieties that were collected out of the wilds you know the teosantes of the world because you're losing all that genetic progress that you've created right the breeders of the world that have ushered it um ushered cannabis to us in the state that it's in today yeah they've made a lot of mistakes because again they're typically not professionally trained scientific plant breeders like the rest of the world's crops right um the cannabis world is kind of funny it's like plant breeders are celebrities and i don't i don't you know, I don't know any celebrity wheat breeders or, or corn breeders, right? It's just not that kind of thing. They're kind of bred by like big time nerds, you know, um, which is great, but, um, it's just kind of the way it is. So, um, we try to work with, you know, we go back to those, what you call land race populations or those more wild populations typically in a plant breeding project when you're looking for a trait that has been lost over time um so for example it corn in the united states went through this vast bottlenecking process because they were trying to make these high yielding sweet corn varieties and they did they created these incredibly bulletproof sweet corn varieties that were high yielding and you know you'd you'd produce 50 times the amount of corn per acre is that you would, if you're using a variety, say from 20, 30 years ago. Um, but one of the things that they learned, they realized is that the plant, the plants became susceptible to, uh, pests in the root in the soil. So the roots would be attacked and the roots, essentially they had lost these compounds, um, that would protect them. So, one of those compounds was beta-caryophylline, which is one of the major sesquiterpenes that's produced by cannabis. It's in all the Cush varieties, OG, Bubba, all that kind of stuff is high in, mir- er, in beta-caryophylline. And beta-caryophylline makes the roots unpalatable to certain aphids, right? Well, they accidentally bred it out because they were so focused on the big sweet corn that the other traits that they weren't really paying attention to, a lot of them got lost along the way. And so they had to actually, when they realized, hey, all the modern corn doesn't produce beta carotene in the roots, they now had to go bait way back in time in their breeding programs to find plants that had those to try and re-introgress that trait back into the population. And so I think for me that that's really where the the major benefits are going to come from those land race lines. Yeah. You're probably getting some interesting head spaces again, because the plants are in the like eight to 10% THC range, not the 20 plus THC range. Um, And maybe some of them have unique or interesting terpene profiles. But funnily enough, most of that stuff has actually been preserved pretty well because Growers and smokers have always liked the interesting smelling plants, right? And there's always been one grower that's, you know, he was like, I really like this type of smell. And in that pursuit, he's managed to breed for the predominance of one terpene over another, right? And so right now, we actually have an incredible amount of genetic diversity in flavor, whereas the plant is probably most going to be able to be to be improved in terms of things like disease resistance and pest resistance right resistance to powdery mildew botrytis yada 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 all that kind of stuff
0: yeah definitely definitely and there's many subjects we'll touch on in the near future of this chat especially preserving old school skunk that's something i want to talk about with you for sure but before we do that let's go back to the start what was your first experience with cannabis?
1: Well, it was hash. Someone had brought some hash to a party. And it was, you know, it was rolled in a, in a, a joint with, with some tobacco. And uh, I think I, I felt a little high. I remember we smoked it and we went outside for a walk. And I remember feeling weird on this walk as we went from one party to another. But it wasn't really that uh, of a profound experience. I kind of came away from the, the whole thing thinking, well, that wasn't really a big deal. Um, and then it became something that we did. You know, I'd go to my friend Costa's house uh, on weekends, and his older brother, you know, would would get us the hash, and we would sit around and listen to Led Zeppelin and 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 smoke hash joints. Um, so it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't really about the diversity in the flavors for me then. I remember then you know i i i met another girl in school just a friend of mine and her older brother was a dealer and she said you know you smoke cannabis I don't, you should i should teach you to my introduce you to my brother because he's got really good stuff and so this this kid became my connection and he had all this like exotic stuff that i'd never seen before like he had there was, he had the purple weed that i'd never seen for the first time and you know manali finger sticks and these like kind of surfboard looking flat plate hashes that were imported um he for whatever reason through his connections he just happened to have all this kind of diversity first time i saw a really nice indoor weed the first time i saw like a cherry oil you know all these kind of things and so when i met this guy it, he really opened my eyes um and he was actually quite instrumental in in my future cannabis use because a couple of years in knowing him he had a couple of guys break into his house in the middle of the middle of the night with a shotgun, and they took his all of his weed and all of his money, and they kidnapped his roommate, and left his roommate, you know, 100 kilometers outside of town, or on the side of a road at a cross streets in his underwear, and uh, that was enough for my 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 friend's older brother to be like, "I want nothing to do with this business anymore. I'm out," which really sucked because. I had learned to have this appreciation for all the diversity that he had and, and showed me. And then I was forced to go back on the street, um, to try and find things of significant quality. Like he had, he always had the quality. And I learned within about eight months or 12 months that most other dealers didn't care about buying them. you know, you, you got to imagine like for any product, there's a wholesale market, right? And the wholesale market has a variation in price. Yeah, you can pay for the the really expensive stuff, but a lot of the dealers, or at least the ones that I knew, they all wanted to buy the lower price stuff because they could make a higher margin on it. Um and that was really contrary to my goals, right? Which was to have the really nice the really nice flowers. And that was kind of right before I entered university and and was getting out on my own, and at that point in time it was like, well, you know what? I know that these things exist. They have to be that you can clearly produce them. The channels that I have are clearly not intro- interested in bringing those things to me, so I'm just going to start growing. And so I went out and I bought every grow book that I could find and some seeds, and I read them all cover to cover, like you know, way too many times. And that was the beginning of this what's become an obsessive, insane pursuit. I think you know for. <laughs> Over the past 30 years, I think the first 15 or 20 of them, most of the people that I knew thought that I was insane, right? It's like, why are you spending all of your time focusing on all this weed? It's really, you know, I could have done a lot of different things, I think, in my life. And so for a lot of people to to see me focusing all that attention on cannabis, I think they thought was a waste of my potential. And then, funnily enough, the world turned around and they all realized that I wasn't insane. I was just ahead of my time. Um, And now, you know, that we have a legal industry, I'm able to, you know, positively influence the industry through this massive gene collection that I've got. Um, Which has always been what I've been interested in doing. You know, I mean, I got, when this system developed in Canada and all the pubcos went, I, I was offered millions of dollars for my seed collection and you know, when someone offers you multiple millions of dollars, you have to seriously think about, you know, why you're doing what you're doing. You know, do you take the big payout and then just go and live a comfortable life? But the truth was is that that's never why I collected, I didn't do all the work collecting all these seeds because I had hoped that one day that there would be a payout, right? I did it because I loved it. And I enjoyed what I was doing. And so I turned all these offers down because it became about, no, I don't, I'm not looking for a buyout. I'm looking for a home, right? For a place where I can actually get a farm and some nice greenhouses and actually take all this hard work that I've put into collecting all these things and start bringing them back to the world. Like you said, right? How do you get these things out and share them with the world? And so the new world is really about dealing with the regulatory challenges to make that happen. How do you how do you sell seeds internationally legally? How do you do all the stuff, right? Because we have to when you start working in a regulated system, you can't live in both worlds, right? You can't be one foot in the black market and one foot in the the legal world. It just doesn't work. Um, so yeah, it's really about about the work and not the money, right? It was a good it was a good lesson to learn, right? It was a good thing to kind of be faced with and and come to the realization that no, you know what? I don't do this for the money. I do it because I love it.
0: Yeah. I I so so much vibe with that message because so often a lot of the the decisions that get made that lead to deleterious outcomes in cannabis are done because people are looking to make money and as kind of as much as it might irritate some people, I always kind of say, like, it's worth considering having a day job so that you don't have to grow a certain cultivar because you need to pay the rent with the yield. You know what I mean? Like, it gives you that freedom to be able to pursue your passions and not, like, the bottom dollar.
1: Yeah, it becomes about, again, the artistry or the that artisanal aspect of whatever your art is, whether it's playing and making guitars or you know raising and curing pork or vegetables or cheese or whatever it's all you know there's some people that are doing it for money and and the commercial aspect for it and then there's some people doing it just to make the finest product right because that's what they enjoy doing they like having the finest cheese in the world or the finest wine in the world um and i think that there's a you know a lot of people say, "Oh, it's like, oh, you're a scientist. You breed weed from a scientific perspective." It's like, yeah, well, true enough. But I'm also an artist, right? It's like, you can, if you're an artist, you can use science as a tool in your toolbox, right? It's like just like a specific type of type of paint or a specific paintbrush, right? Just because you're using science, it doesn't mean that you can't do the art aspect of it as well, right? So to me, it's a it's a fusion of those two. Yeah, the science is just a set of tools that help you execute your art.
0: Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. So, if we kind of touch on that same theme, what was your first grow like? I find the viewers are always extremely interested in hearing, you know, like, do you remember the, st- the first strain you ever grew and the sort of technology? Was it like sort of all MacGyvered together? Give us a little rundown if you can remember.
1: Yeah. So, it wasn't, it wasn't a known or a named seed lot. It was you're probably noticing I don't use the word strain and we can touch on that after, but, um, yeah, it wasn't a known variety. It wasn't a labeled variety. It was seeds that I got out of some bud. Um, I was young. I was like too young to be growing weed that way. Um, I'd heard stories of family members that had grown weed in the past and I just kind of grabbed some seeds and I was like, I started them and I told my parents and they were, you know, one of my, my parents were separated at that point in time. They didn't live together any longer. So, you know, I said to my mom, I said, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grow some plants. And I think that really what happened is she was like, yeah, okay, sure. Thinking that I would completely fail, of course. You know, I was <laughs> I was still in high school. Like I was, you know, I think I was 14 or 15 at the time. Uh, my mom was going to be rolling her, rolling her upset if she hears <laughs> me <laughs> telling this story <laughs> publicly. But anyway, that's another conversation. So um, so I started growing these plants. So I went to the Hydra store and – they set me up with a, you know, I told them, you know, we're growing some tomatoes at our house and I want to do this. And they, they were like, OK, well, it, they sold me a, a one foot by four foot um, kind of like a window box tray and and a um, slab of rock wool that fit perfectly into that one foot by four foot um, tray I got a bucket and a pump and a, and a short piece of hose that became the drip dripper line. And it just, we, you know, we designed it into the, what I later came to learn was a recirculating drip system, took it home, put it in the window, planted a couple of seeds right into the medium. And for the next year and a half, I had these stupid unhealthy plants in my basement beside my guitars and all my friends coming over to smoke dope on the weekend. Um, and i would turn the lights off when i would go to bed and i'd turn them on when i'd get up in the morning <laughs> right and so these plants of course never flowered they do they weren't getting any kind of consistent light cycle um and finally i think it must have been it, like it must have been like you know 13 14 months or something and finally my mom was had enough and she's like that those have to go and so i moved them down to my dad's house and put them in a window that happened to be west facing and i didn't know anything about it but just coincidentally, it, it happened to be fall. So the plants flowered, right? And we cut them down and it was terrible smoke uh, <laughs> because the genetics were crap. And But I, but it was a learning experience, right? It was like, huh, you can actually get these things through to the, the cycle. Um and I put it away for a couple of years. I didn't even really think about it again because it didn't – again, it didn't turn out well and I was living at my parents' fo- – my folks' house. But when I moved out on my own, I was like, OK, I'm going to figure this thing out and learn how to do it right. So the second time I started growing, I went and bought a little 400-watt light from the grow store. And you know, I, I think I was growing in 20-liter buckets reading the old Mel Frank books and some of Ed Rosenthal's old books. And you know, obviously Marijuana Botany was my Bible. Um, and it just went from there and I started screening and I remember going down to the, the hydro store and I was kind of friends with the guy and I subtly said to him, I was like, Hey man, you know, do you think I can get some clones? Is there any way? And he gave me the, the stock answer was, you know, he's like, no, we don't do that. And part of growing cannabis is cutting your teeth on seeds and finding some good plants and working with those. And I was like, well fuck you. You know, I I did that. I went and went insane with buying seeds and started growing all these different varieties. And about a year later, he was asking me for cuttings because I had better, you know, I'd found better plants than what they were growing. Um, and I realized that I really liked that, that part of the the grow. And I was, you know, I was in university and started, I I think I had a, a genetics course. And from that point on, I just got right into it. Um, and was almost immediately bringing, you know, I brought, I brought the the flowers that I had produced back to the storefront that was selling the seeds. And he was like, wow, your flowers are really good. Like, can I get some seeds from these? And so I made a couple of crosses and I donated them to one of the early medical uh, cannabis challenges uh, that were going on in Canada. And they sold them through this head shop. And the feedback was really good, right? Because I had found excellent plants for, for the parents and just having a little bit of knowledge from, you know, my plant breeding courses or my genetics course, I was able to make better choices for what constituted a good parent. And I guess the seeds turned out well. And, you know, when I went in one day and the guy was like, man, your seeds are getting great reviews from all these people. We want you to start making more seeds. And that kind of just fit in really good with what I was doing. So I from kind of from the start, like I didn't really grow cannabis to have largest amount to sell it. I, I always just became the guy that was growing lots of plants from seed and keeping clones and finding interesting plants and and working for them that way. And it, it I found it really enjoyable, right? I, that's kind of what I love about cannabis is there's such a diversity in the, Morphological and chemical profiles, the scent, as you know, the cannabinoids, everything. Like it's, it really is a remarkable plant in that way. Um, unlike many types of plants, which are much more uniform um, and less diverse. And so, cannabis has got so much that we can do with it that it's really kind of a fun plant to play with.
0: Wholeheartedly agree. Wholeheartedly agree. The thing which jumps to mind for me when I hear that amazing story is. Obviously, a lot of people talk about having looked at Rob Clark's books and people of that early generation who really laid a lot of the the paving for future breeders and for future growers. But the thing about Rob was he wasn't like as notable of a breeder as he was sort of like a guru and an instructor, were there specifically any breeders who you looked at when you started your projects and thought this person has a good feel for what they're doing? And they were kind of like a, um, like, you know, a figure you looked up to in a sense. Well, I
1: met Sam pretty early on. Right. Um, And he kind of, we, we kind of connected over the internet because he, I think he recognized he's like, wow, this person knows what they're talking about. And so I went over to Canada, the cannabis cup, I, don't, I can't even remember what year it was. It was pretty early on. And I met, I, I met Sam and when he found out who I was, I think he was kind of taken back that I was much younger than he had thought that I would have been. And, and he kind of like brushed me off and, you know, he was a little bit like dismissive of me. And I was like, whatever, I just, I don't know this guy. That's fine. And I got, I remember leaving, you know, completing my trip and coming back home. And I went home and found an email waiting from Dave, from from Dave, Sam, David. And he, um, and he essentially apologized to me. He's like, I'm sorry, I was kind of rude to you. And he was like, next time you come back to Amsterdam, you come over to my house for dinner. And I, I got a bunch of stuff to show you. And, you know, I don't know, Most a lot of people might not realize, but he was also the president or founder of the International Hemp Association. So he was a pretty central figure in the cannabis world. Um, and his connections are just so deep. Um, and I honestly don't know if I've ever met anybody more than than David that is more passionate about cannabis than David. He really is like... You know, a lot of people slag him on the Internet and there's all these stupid, just totally wrong rumors about him working for the DEA and the CIA that get passed around about him online. And, you know, I got to tell you, it's just not true. Like all that stuff is just it's all got like tiny little bases in reality. But, you know, for example, like he did when he started, he was licensed to work in Holland. And so the University of Mississippi, which was the only licensed DEA grow at the time. They wanted to get genetics to improve their their work. They reached out to David and said, "Hey, we're doing science over here in, in, in Mississippi and in University of Mississippi. Can you send us some seeds? You're you're legally allowed to grow them in Holland. Can you export some to the states?" And so they went and got a. You know, they're a DEA licensed producer in the states. They're one of the only ones, or I think they're the only one now. But there used to be two, and. The DEA granted them an import permit to produce seeds. And, and so David was able to export seeds from Hortifarm, Farm, his company, into the United States completely legally. But somehow the community thought, oh, well, David's working with the DEA. He's got these abilities to do these things. And the truth was is that he of course he wasn't working with the DEA. There's nobody that would work with the DEA less than David, right? Like he's completely on board for the cause. Like he's not helping out the CIA or the DEA. That's just stoner nonsense. Um, but there was a lot of animosity towards David because he had figured out how to do legally what everybody else couldn't do, right? They, they, everybody else was playing in the in the black market world, and he had learned how he had figured out. How to get a grow licensed? How to do research on plants? Uh, how to start looking into the different chemical profiles in the plant? The truth is, is he was like one of the very, very first people in the Western world that was promoting medical cannabis or the medical use of cannabis, and he firmly believed that you could gr- you could take all these plants and create all these different chemical profiles from them when nobody else even was even close to considering doing that. So, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for David. He's really like, he's kind of like a father figure to me. Um, and, and he's just, he's just a great guy. He's a weirdo for sure. And he'll tell you that straight out of his own mouth. Um, he's really quite eccentric, but he is super smart he is super focused on cannabis and collecting as many different types as he can from all over the world and learning about the plant. Um, you know, he's in his seventies and he sucks up information, all the new information, like a vacuum cleaner. It's really unbelievable. Um, so, you know, as a role model from people to look, to look at from, as I was kind of starting my career, he and Rob, I mean, there was no better, there was no better people to know. Right Because I, I got to learn through him too the the truth behind the the Dutch seed company at the time. And honestly, these stories of these massive breeding houses in Holland doing work on seeds is that's nonsense. It's a it's a fable. It's just not it's not what happens, right? A lot of these guys produce seeds in closets, and it's no different than the work that anybody else is doing anywhere else in the world. It's just that they can legally sell the seeds and create a marketing um, perspective that makes it look like they're doing the work. Well, the truth is they're not doing the work. Right. So David was really one of the only people that were, you know, he built a laboratory. He started looking for THC and CBD and all these other cannabinoids. And they even started looking at terpenes like way before their time, way before anybody else was. Um, so, yeah, I think if you're asking who my, the people I looked up to, it would be those guys, you know, other people in the Canadian space. I would just collect everybody's seeds. I would buy seeds and sell seeds and it was all about just getting everything right. There wasn't any ego attached to it. The first person that I was kind of really excited to work with was, was DJ, um, and the blueberry. Um, that was kind of fun because he was just a, you know, his stuff was just so different than everybody else's. And from a genetic diversity point of view, I thought that it was, you know, it was a good addition to your your pool of what you're working with. It's like a whole new little subset of of genetics to create hybrids with. Um, but by that point in time, I was starting to be really disenfranchised with the rest of the seed business. So I think for most people, I don't, you know, there's a few people that are doing it right, like Simon, Serious Seed Simon. He's, um, he's not a trained plant breeder, but he really understands what he's doing and he... He understands trying to create a uniform product and and uh you know i think his work is really good um some of the younger guys there's a lot of younger guys that are know what they're doing you know caleb from uh csi seeds he does some good stuff Uh, there's a whole bunch of people that are doing it right now and that are starting to do i think we're kind of in a bit of a renaissance for cannabis, there's a lot of people that are just hacking plants together and creating an image and, you know, being really popular on Instagram. And th- that's all fine and dandy. But I think for most of those people, it's about making money, not really about improving the plant. Um, but I'd like to see more of these people invest in a couple of plant, plant breeding textbooks and put some effort into trying to learn about, you know, the biological basis for for plant breeding because when you understand all that stuff you can just you're really more effective in your work right Um, and i think that the people that really care about the plant and improving the plant they do that and a lot of the people that are more concerned about the money and the celebrity don't really do that
0: and that's a shame yeah certainly and just a plethora of avenues we could go down in terms of the discussion Before we jump on to some of the other breeders you mentioned, I'd love to just chat about David a little more if possible. And specifically, I think the question which I most commonly hear around that sort of DEA mystery sort of thing is that I think a lot of people have a hard time understanding how that story about how the warehouse got raided and then like he was him or his colleagues were able to like get the plants out of the dumpster and then bail do you have any reflections or insight into that story like do you think he just got lucky or what do you think the situation was with that the
1: story's not even true that's the funny thing is that David was involved with I think he he, he technically wasn't even involved in the bust he, he had moved to Amsterdam or he, you know he went over to start work in Amsterdam um was kind of exploring it. Cause you know, if you were in the drug scene and you heard that Canada, that Holland was popping off and you could go there grow weed. I mean, that was a pretty exciting thing for people. So he went over there and started doing some work and, you know, realized, Oh, this is the place for me. I got to go back to California and close up my life there. And I'm moving over to Amsterdam. And so he did. And he went back and, you know, got all their stuff dealt with. And then he moved to Holland and his wife at the time got busted and it it wasn't the wife. It was their roommate had a male plant in the window and that was the, Oh, and so David, but David wasn't even there. That's the only California like cannabis bus that even has any remotely closeness to David. Right. Um, so all these stories about like the sacred seed collective and all the, this is just, these are nonsense stories that people just make up on the internet. Um, and I've done, you know, I've, I, I'm a pretty untrusting person when it comes to things like this of history. And I've done a little bit of looking into it and I tell you, man, he's not like that didn't happen. So I don't know about the story in the warehouse and the plants and saving the plants and all this kind of stuff. It's to me, it sounds like internet fantasy, but there's no basis in reality to it as far as I'm aware. And I've asked him all these questions You know, I've asked David all the hard questions. Um, cause I wanted to get to, to the basis of it. And the answers are always very like, it's, you know, you, you know, the concept of Occam's razor or parsimony, right? It's like the simplest explanation is usually the, the true one. Right. And I think that with, and listen, I've had people do it with me. We'll, we'll probably get to that later in the episode, but there's a lot of fantastical stuff that's written about me on the internet. That's just has no basis in reality. So I've seen it, I, you know, I've seen it happen. Um, and I, you know, no, getting to know David as I have over the last 20 years, I just, I just don't believe any of this, that stuff. Right. And you talk to other, you know, I've been able to go back and meet like other people that he worked with in California and, you know, he knew Rob back in the day and I've talked to Rob about all this kind of stuff. And it's just, I think that a lot of it spurred from the fact that he was able to get these licenses that nobody else was able to, to do. Um, when GW Pharmaceuticals got the go ahead from um, the home office in the United States to set up a grow and start working there, obviously, you know, because they understood that there, there was pharmaceutical potential in cannabis. And so they started doing everything that you would do. To do that, you, you, you set up a grow, you start doing some science, you, you make some extractions, you figure out what molecules are in the plant and you start testing them. And they needed a genetic supply. They needed to turn to somebody in the world and say, hey, do you have these rare varieties with all these different chemistries? And sure enough, they found Hortifarm because Hortifarm was the only company in the world that was doing that work. And, you know, David had... David kept Hortifarm Farmer alive with his own, he didn't, he didn't have a bunch of people giving him money, right? I mean, there was no public markets for raising funds to support that kind of business. He was doing it with his own work and paying for that kind of work with his, his legal seed sales, right? Seed sales were always legal in, in Holland. And so he was able to sell some seeds and pay for, you know, pay to do his work. But when GW really approached him, Hortifarm Farm was struggling, right? Because it's really it's really expensive, man. When you start doing science on cannabis, I mean, you're spending like $50, $100 for a lab test. So if you're running, you know, thousands or even tens of thousands of plants, that gets really, really expensive really quickly. And when you're legal, your compliance costs are huge. You have to have security. You have to have, you know, record keeping. Like it's, it's not... It's not done the way that people in the black market do without having all these different reporting duties and, and regulatory duties. And so when, when GW came along, they offered Horta Farm a lifeline. Like it was really a lifeline at that point in time so that David could keep doing the work. You know, he had staffing costs. They had, they had a, It was running a business when you're not making an income and you're doing research is a really, really difficult thing to do. I don't think people really understand that. Um, if you haven't done it, but yeah, that's kind of what he was doing. And, um, because he was doing that and because, you know, that the community's always thought, Oh, big pharma, they're the evil people. The guys that run GW, they like helping patients just like anybody else. Right. Where I, I know a few of the scientists work for that company and they're, you know, I, I hear them tell stories that bring. Yeah, you, you probably know some people that, you know, they produce weed and they give it away to a, a medical patient of one type or another or a child that's got epilepsy or, some, epilepsy or something. And you get a lot of pride from doing that. Like, there's really kind of no better feeling than than helping someone with your work with a plant, right? Like, if you can grow a plant and take that plant and extract the flowers or whatever you do, make an extract, that's not the important part. But if you can, like, bring a plant to life... And, and harvest it and take that medicine and give it to somebody and it really changes their life, there's nothing that feels better than that. And it's like, it really is just a completely satisfying altruistic thing to do. And, and I know that a lot of the research scientists that work in at GW, they kind of feel the same way as the growers up in California that are growing um, medicine for, for children with an epilepsy, right? It's, it's really altruistic and the community as a whole, not everybody, but as a whole has this bias against big pharma. And so they look at anything related to do with big pharma as, oh, you're selling out or you're taking our plant and giving it away, you know, to the man. And like I said earlier, to me, these plant genetics are a human resource that should be accessible to everybody, right? Um whether you're with a big company or you're a little guy, like it doesn't matter, right? I don't think the the big guys should be stealing from the little guys. But I think having access to the tools is kind of fair game across the board, right? You're certainly not going to keep wheat seeds or corn seeds or potato seeds out of anybody's hands, right? Like if you want to work with a plant as a human, I think that you've got the right to go and collect some seeds from wherever you can find them and start working.
0: Yeah, definitely, definitely and I I certainly agree with the sentiment that there is a lot of like anti-big pharma sentiment in the community and you know, I can understand why in some respects, you know, like the the opioid crisis in America is an obvious thing you could point at and be uh, quite skeptical of their motives in that regard, but I understand what you mean where it's like I've met a lot of people who work in big pharma and a lot of them want the best for their patients and they're not doing it for financially driven reasons. And I, I always love how people are like super critical of big pharma, but no one ever has a problem with antibiotics. It's like we, you know it's, you know, it's like we just agree that it's actually being done for the good of people, but like it does cost money to produce them.
1: Yeah, well, we're getting to the point, though, where we have this whole anti, like anti-vaccine movement now right it's like there's we we used to take pride in in having knowledge and now there's a large segment of certain countries <laughs> maybe remain nameless that they really take pride in the ignorance it's like if you're if you're an educated person person they're like oh you're up in your ivory tower you're not in contact with the regular the regular man and it's gotten to the point where they think that you know bill bill gates is trying to chip people he's trying to like Right? And it's like, I saw a sign the other day, it, said, it was a picture of Bill Gates, or a, they'd put his head on, on someone at a gates, and it, and it said, um, you're not worth microchipping, change my mind. Right? <laughs> it's like, why would you think that, like, the, the guy's just given away, like, most of his wealth, and the, somehow, the conspiracy folks of the world have turned around to, oh, no, he's actually just trying to use it to get more money. It's kind of insane. I don't think if you have any understanding of science and virology and vaccines that you know especially in a covid world, how you could be anti vaccine, I just I don't get it.
0: Yeah, it's it's pretty wild. Well, there you have it, friends. A huge shout-out to Ryan of Chimero Genetics for helping make this one happen. I hope you learn a ton. As always, big, big shout-out to our amazing sponsors, C Tier now, best seed bank in the game. Go hit them up if you want to grow that fire. They got all the best breeders in the game, the ones you need, as well as Poppet Biological Systems best predators microbes and feeds and so much more go check them out to keep your garden happy and healthy likewise huge shout out to the patreon gang we love you guys so much thank you for your support you truly are the lifeblood of the show i hope you learn a ton stay tuned for the next two parts to drop soon i'll see you for the next one we'll see you